If you're present this morning and you're concerned about that song and about the fact that you may not be certain that you'll live in glory by and by, we want to do everything we can to help you to get to a place where you are more sure, more confident, and more bold when this life comes to an end. This is a room filled of people who have either A, been baptized for the mission of their sins, or B, are thinking about hopefully that process in the next uh, very soon days. And we're all in the same boat, or at least in the same storm, in that we have sin that we face, as Romans 3 talked about, that Jason referenced in his very good talk a few moments ago. But the solution is the same for all of us, and that is Jesus the Christ. And it is his church, it is the salvation that we enjoy through him. And so if we can help you this morning, we want to do so. And we hope that you'll not be bashful in asking for spiritual help from people who want to help you in any way possible. I invite you to take your Bibles. That's the book that we always study from because it is God's inspired word to the New Testament book of James, where we're going to spend just maybe a minute or two at the outset of our study here in James, the first chapter, very late in the New Testament. As Brother Gerald pointed out, we are blessed with the number of visitors, and we are thankful for the presence of you and for the encouragement that you provide us. This is a group of Christians that are trying to help each other get to heaven, help each other in glorifying God and bringing glory to him because that's where the emphasis needs to be. And I hope to now segue into the topic and the title of our study this morning that some of you may already be aware of based on the outline or I've had some conversations with some of you over what I'm preaching this morning. I hope you do feel good. At the same time, I don't hope you feel good depending on the way you talk about feel good religion. And we are involved in a world or we live in a world wherein everything is about feeling good. And everyone wants you to feel good. And everything is just A-OK. And it doesn't matter what you believe. It doesn't matter whether you go to church or not. It doesn't matter what church you go to. It doesn't matter what you believe or disbelieve. Just feel good about it. And accept your truth. I've noticed over the last number of years, this idea of your truth and my truth has seemed to grow in popularity and We know that there is the truth, and that's what we adopt and what we live by. But I want to talk about religion today in a very generic sense, but also in a specific sense. Then I want to talk about three or four concepts that I think are important to this particular subject that I believe is sobering, thought-provoking, Uh, and important for us to make sure that we as, whether we are seasoned Christians or newer Christians, are grounded on. And there may be some things this morning, especially if you're visiting with us, or if you're not a Christian, or if you're new to Bible study, or you're new to the Lord's church, that may seem a little bit odd to you, or even offensive. And our goal is not to be offensive, but our goal is to teach the truth and to let those chips fall where they may. So I want to begin with just a very simple question. What do we mean by religion? Because after all, different people use the word religion in a lot of different ways. Sometimes people will say, well, I'm not religious at all, but I am a spiritual person. 
whatever that means. Or someone would say, well, I'm spiritually minded, but I'm not very religious in my activity, whatever that may mean. Uh, sometimes we talk about a person being very spiritual with their diet or with their, I'm sorry, very religious with their diet. Or I suppose you could be spiritual with your, with, your, with your diet. I don't know how that works, but religious is the idea of doing something in a, in a very uh, task-oriented in getting the job done. Or your attendance, you're very religious in your attendance at school or at work, or you take your, your vitamins religiously on a daily basis. By definition, I came across this nice definition, is a specific, at least when we're talking about it in religious spiritual overtones, fundamental set of beliefs or practices that are agreed upon generally by a number of persons or different groups or sects. And so the word religion is not a bad word. It is actually a Bible word, which is why I asked you, obviously, to open to James chapter 1. There are times where maybe using the word religious may not be as helpful as using the word spiritually minded. It depends on the context of the conversation you're having and the person with whom you're having that conversation. But that takes us to James chapter 1, where James, the, the inspired writer, uses the word religion or religious uh, in helping us to understand the way that we live in respect to others. And so he says in verse 26, if anyone among you thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this one's religion is useless. And then he uses the term for a third time in verse 27, pure and undefiled religion. This is the New King James Version. Before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. So that's one way that that word religion or religious idea is used in Scripture. The other thing that comes to mind, especially if you're like me, thinking, where else do I see that word? I remember that, yes, it was Paul in Acts chapter 17, who, depending on the version that you're reading from, says, I perceive that you are very religious. Some versions say you are very superstitious. And religious in the very uh, elementary sense of you have all these different altars to these various different idol gods, pagan gods. And then you have in the mist here in Athens, uh, a monument to the unknown God. Just in case we missed anybody, we want to make sure that we worship that God as well. And of course, Paul says, I'm here to tell you about the only God who exists. That's the God that you should serve. And so at the very outset, and something that I think we all agree to and agree about, or it may be controversial, is that a person can be religious in his or her attention to something without being spiritually minded. And so we want to make sure that we are religious in that we follow the duties and the traditions of the Bible while also being spiritually minded and that we're not just doing it for show or doing it so that we make ourselves simply feel good. But again, in the religious world that we are surrounded by and we are really in the middle of, there are lots of different taglines or slogans or beliefs that seem to be represented. And the one that came to mind as I was thinking about this over the last four weeks is the idea of judgment and that there's no judgment allowed. 
Who are you to tell me that my religious beliefs or that my spiritually minded beliefs, if we can use that a little bit loosely, are wrong or incorrect? We know that judgment and judging is key to New Testament Christianity. That in and of itself may be a newsflash to those in the world who suggest there's no judgment allowed whatsoever. And so I want to look at just two passages here, and then we're going to come back to one of those passages uh, about 30 seconds later. But I want to go to John chapter 7, to a passage that is quoted quite often. And he says there, do not judge, this is Matthew, I'm sorry, John chapter 7 and in verse 24, he says, don't judge according to appearance. We have little proverbial statements, don't judge the book by the cover, make sure that you look more than just skin deep, make sure that you look at the inside character of a person just as much as you would look at the outside. But that seems to be what Jesus is saying here. Don't judge according to appearance, but instead judge with righteous judgment. This incidentally may be a verse that you might want to tuck into your memory or jot down in your Bible that when someone says, we are never to judge anybody else, not so that you can win the argument or one-up them, but so that you can defend the truth, say, well, I think there is something said by Jesus that we are to judge in a righteous way. Similarly, we read Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 5 quite often. And that little story that Jesus tells near the tail end of the Sermon on the Mount is very familiar. We'll come back and talk about that here in just a second or two. But verse 6, he says, Do not give what is holy to the dogs nor cast your pearls before swine. Those are, those are code words in Jewish language and this first century audience that these are people that you don't want to be involved with or uh, invest your time too much in. Otherwise, they will trample them under their feet and turn and they will tear you to pieces. This is not an exposition of Matthew chapter 7, but simply put, what seems to be pointed out here in Matthew chapter 7 verse 6 is that if we are going to identify someone as a dog or as a swine, as something that is inappropriate or something that we need to be careful about investing our time in, it is going to require some judgment on our part. Now, the thing that we always point out, or at least that I always try to point out, and I think that we as Christians try to do a good job of this, is making sure that we understand that while judgment needs to be cast, and it's right and appropriate for me to say, you can't be doing that because that's wrong, just as much as you need to say that about me if I'm involved in some sort of sin, judgmentalism seems to be condemned. In James chapter 2, verses 1 through 9, we see this partiality that plays out among a group of people who say, we're going to tell you that you're more important and you're less important and we are going to judge you by your outward appearance and violate John chapter 7 verse 24. Or going back to Matthew chapter 7 verses 1 through 5, this is where Jesus says, judge not lest you be judged. And he says, with the judgment you judge, you'll be judged and with the measure you use, it's going to be measured back to you. And then he tells the story about the man with a, a long two by four coming out of his head saying, let me clear up the confusion that you have. And it's symbolized by a speck of dust in your eye. And that silly little uh, uh, example seems to be to catch our attention to understand that this is the point that needs to be made this morning. And that is a person or a group of persons can do anything they desire. And in the name of not being judged, they should be allowed to do anything and everything. 
or phrase that in a question form as it is on the screen. You may say, well, I, 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 you may be from a worldly perspective or you may hear that from someone and say, you have no right to tell me how I should live my life, who I can marry, who I can interact with, the kinds of places that I can go, because you are a sinner just like everyone else. And they'll, they'll say, none of us are perfect. I've been thinking about a sermon, by the way. I'm just throwing this out there. I maybe do this sometime in 2024. None of us are perfect. And that's true. But why do people say that sometimes? Dot, dot, dot. Say that for 2024. But the fact of the matter is, if we cannot say anything is wrong, then everything must be appropriate and be right. If, if you're telling me I can't be a judge of saying that's not right for you as an individual, and that's not right for you as a religious group, that's not right for you as a church, those are things that throw caution to the wind and we say, forget it. Anything and everything goes. And so I remember as a very young boy hearing the idea of the Lord's Supper elements, that if you're going to throw out this authority, more on that subject in just a moment, then why not have something more substantial than a small cracker and a little bit of grape juice on the Lord's Supper? Indeed, Jesus talks about unleavened bread and the fruit of the vine as we took later, or as we took earlier, but, but why not make that more substantive and have cheeseburgers and Diet Coke? And while we look at that, we say, well, no one would ever do that. Why can't someone do that? I'm not about to tell you. Here's the sarcasm here. I'm not about to tell you that that's wrong. Or, or why not say, let's just make this a complete uh, a feast and we'll have fried chicken and everything else. And while that might be good for our bellies, it's not good for our souls and for our spirits and what matters spiritually. I can't tell you it's wrong. Because I can't tell you anything that's wrong if you're going to say that I can't judge. I'm here to say that the Lord himself judged on that subject years ago. You may laugh about this, but if you have seen YouTube videos or seen things on the news, what about snake venom and worship? Would it be appropriate for me to bring up some sort of a poisonous snake and allow it to bite me and to, and to see whether or not it's going to cause me death or whether by my self-miraculous healing powers I'm able to withstand the power of that venom? We'd say, no, that, that's inappropriate. Everyone knows that's inappropriate. Apparently not everyone knows that's inappropriate. Let's take a little bit a step further, both to Old Testament practices and even in the New Testament, as Brother Bill talked about in our, sermon, or in our Bible class this morning. What about uh, some sort of sexual worship? So, well, that would never happen. 27, 28, 2900 years ago, there were Canaanite prostitutes who were working in their temples. It bled over into, the New, or into, the, into Old Testament mosaic practices where the prophets would have to say, this needs to stop sacrificing your children to the God of Molech. These are all things that people said, anything goes. And we might say, well, that would never happen to us. These apparent big, ugly things, probably not, hopefully. But are there ways that maybe it could creep in? And I think the answer is yes, which we'll get to at the close of our study in just a few moments. And I want to bring us back then to what we've been doing all morning, and that is we've been worshiping our God. And so I asked a question maybe four to six weeks ago, why are we here today? And there's different ways of answering that question in an appropriate way. 
But it seems to me that there are three things that we are doing. We are honoring, we are worshiping, and we are remembering our great God. That's why we're here today. Now, you may say, I'm, I'm here so I can sing praises. That's true. But in singing praises, you're honoring, worshiping, and remembering. I'm here to partake of the Lord's Supper. That's honoring, worshiping, and remembering. So all the different things that we are doing, including hopefully right now, are bringing honor, worship, and remembrance to our great God. Which is why I had our good brother read for us Psalm 100, which I'd like for you to go back and reread with me because of its brevity again. I was thinking about Psalm 100 on this particular point because to me, uh, it's here we are at the 100th Psalm, and 100 is this good number that we begin the, the second two-thirds, or, or give or take. And this is a very short Psalm, and it's all about praise of God. And I want to read it again, and I'm going to emphasize, and I'm going to put up my subpoint so you can watch it with me. But you'll note that I counted 16 references to God, to the Lord, to him, or to his. He says, make a joyful shout to the Lord, all you lands. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who has made us and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter into his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise and be thankful to him and bless his name. For the Lord is good. His mercy is everlasting. His truth endures to all generations. I think this is a very important psalm for a number of reasons, and it's one that takes all about 60 seconds to read, but it takes a long time to reflect on, and it seems to me that the psalmist here is saying, when we come, and I understand that we're, we're taking a little bit of liberty with something that's been written probably uh, 2,900 years to 3,000 years ago, when we come to a church service, we are not here to say that's great song leading, though it is. We're not here to say that was really good preaching. Hopefully it is. The words of the Lord's Supper really helped me, and I hope they do. But ultimately, the reason we're gathered here is to say, God, you are great. And that matters more than anything else. Our worship is all about God. And the reason I point this out here in this part of our study is because it seems to me that we've gotten very much in a worldly sense associated with coming to worship to make ourselves feel good, to make ourselves feel an emotional or religious or spiritual high. I want that preacher to make me feel good today. And I hope that there are times where, I hope generally speaking, that David and I do make you feel good, even if we do, in the words of Brother Phil, step on some toes and say some things that may hurt you and may hurt even us. I hope that you don't leave every sermon or that you leave every worship service saying that was the most rotten day in the world. No, it's good to be here, to worship our God and to reflect and say, there's some things that I need to change in my life. But it's all about him. Worship, religion, is all about giving the Lord, this goes back to our high school class just a couple days ago, giving him his crown and keeping the focus where it needs to be. Instead, what do we do is we yank that crown away from him and say, glorify me, look how great I am. And so you have some of the most famous preachers in the world who now are multi, 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 multi millionaires and, and being rich is not necessarily uh, 
wrong. It's just the, how you use it. But you have individuals on TV that people say, oh, he's just so wonderful. His smile is so white. Uh, his face is so pleasant to look at. His message makes me feel good. And when interviewed, those televangelists and just even preachers in smaller groups still, they will go on the record and say, I'm not going to preach about sin. Why? Because I don't want people leaving, quote, my church. There's a problem there. Thinking that they're bad or thinking that there's something they need to change. If you are involved in sin, you need to feel bad about it and you need to change. And that's not a popular message that will fill this building with 400 people next week and double our population, so to speak. But it's certainly something that must be recognized. Let me say one more little thing about this, and, uh, and this may step on some toes, and, and so be it. But you and I need to be individuals who exercise caution with the idea, boy, I sure didn't get much out of worship today. Why? Well, it didn't make me feel good. So what? What's your point? Are you here to feel good? Or are you here to worship God? Now, as a byproduct, worshiping God's going to make you feel good. And there's nothing wrong with walking out of here saying, this has been a good day. I hope that it will truly be that case. And I'm confident it will be based on everything we've done. But sometimes you get out of it what you put into it. And we've got to acknowledge that as well. But someone might say, we could get more people if. I remember a number of years ago, I was preaching in a very small group for a weekend, maybe 20 people. And there was a man who was a brand new Christian who had very little knowledge of anything about biblical authority or scripture in general or in specific form. And he says, you know, we could get more people if we, and he started listing things off. And I quickly realized, okay, we're dealing with someone here who doesn't have a lot of uh, biblical uh, basis or understanding or foundation, and that's okay. We can work with that. But there needed to be some corrective teaching very quickly on that occasion. Too often, those of us in religious circles, we focus on the wrong things. And we keep ourselves motivated by the incorrect things. What ways could we gain more numbers? Some might say, how is it that we could get more people here to listen to the gospel? Now, that sounds wonderful. And we could, I am confident, double the group within the course of a few weeks. We could do an old Oprah Winfrey trick and put a $100 bill under every couple of seats. Place to be filled. We're going to give you a car and give you a car On a more serious note, are there things that denominations do? Strike that. Are there things that even local churches of our people will sometimes be tempted to do in order to gain more people and to make them more comfortable? I hope that you didn't come today without your breakfast and thought that you were going to have donuts and coffee with us today because that's not happening. And it's not happening because we're cheapskates. It's not happening because we don't believe that it's appropriate to have some uh, food in the morning. But of course, that's not the work of the church. 
We do not have circus-like attractions. I know I'm opening myself to, up to a joke there. Someone's going to say something. But, but there's no trapeze artists. There's no big jump around the parking lot. May step on some toes here. That's okay. There's no ice skating rink in our parking lot. Those of you who live on that side of town, right? We don't do any of that. The power of the gospel is that which provides for salvation. Someone comes here and says, what do, you, what do you got to offer me? I got the gospel. No, what, no, no what do you got for me? <laughs> got Bible study. <laughs> Let me rephrase it. No, people aren't interested in those things sometimes. How about a softer approach to divorce and remarriage? How about a different approach to same-sex marriage? How about a softer landing for those who may want to drink some on occasion? That would cause people to say, yeah, that's a group that's progressive. They're with the times. If we are accused of being progressive, that's probably not generally a good thing in 21st century America. I want to look at two passages here that seem to talk about this and two passages that any preacher, young or old, needs to either memorize or read on frequent occasion. One of those is in Paul's closing words, literally the last few words he shares. He says to Timothy, a young preacher, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, he says, I'm charging you or I'm urging you, I'm begging you, I'm pleading with you. Chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing in his kingdom. And he says, I want you to preach the word. I want you to be ready in season and out of season to convince, rebuke, and exhort with all longsuffering and teaching. Paul, Timothy might ask, why is it so important that I do this? For the time will come when they will not endure sound teaching or sound doctrine. But according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers. They will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. But you, Timothy, be watchful in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, and fulfill your ministry. At what point does the Apostle Paul, as inspired by the Holy Spirit, say, I want you to figure out ways to get more people in the building or in the house or in the farm uh, barn, whatever the churches may have been meeting? Never. Now, do we want more people to hear the truth? Absolutely. Do we rejoice when we have new members because of their baptism in the Christ? Absolutely. Someone once said, numbers are important to God. There's an entire book of the Bible about it. But, but that's not our primary objective. And so all of us, well, I, I will say all of us, but most of us have visited around the country. And you've gone to places where it's a tenth of the population of Northfield. And you literally have 15 to 18 people. And when you show up along with your children and you make it, as if it's 18, if you make it 22 to 24, they're like, thank you so much for being here. So what a big crowd we've had today. We've got 26 people today, they would say. A couple more visitors. Someone was telling me just a week or so ago in a conversation that we don't know what we've got until we don't have it. And we are blessed not to be a perfect congregation, but to have 175, 185 individuals this morning who are concerned about spiritually-minded things. And while we want more, 
We must never sacrifice the truth in order to make that happen. Which brings us to just a page or two over in your Bible. And I understand this is talking about elders, but there are some universal applications in Titus chapter 1 and verse 10. He says, there are many, chapter 1, verse 10 of the short letter to Titus, there are lots of insubordinate people, idle talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision. And those are individuals, Titus, whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole households, and they teach things which they ought not for the sake of dishonest gain. And I understand that the context here is where Paul's talking about particular, probably Judaizing teachers, and then he goes on and elaborates a little bit in verses 12 and 13 with some of those different teaching methods and individuals. But it is a universal application that we cannot say, I can get more people if I soften the, the truth, if I soften the message, if I change the way that we do things or add things to make it better. And the reason that we care so much about this is because of the fact of authority and that it matters. Brother David did a series of sermons about three months ago on the subject of authority and did a good job of revisiting that. And we'll revisit it until time ends because we have to. But the proper establishment of rules for and of biblical authority are absolutely critical. And it's critical for those of us who are older, who are now teaching middle school and high school classes. It's critical for those of you that have children who are pushing teens and even before, and then certainly into their teens and 20s to make sure that they understand that there are rules for what you can and can't do as governed by this book. It is not a book that is there to restrict us and to make us feel like we don't have any freedoms or liberty, but it is a book that helps us to understand what God wants us to do and what God does not want us to do. And so, let me suggest to you that when you think about command, when you think about example, and when you think about necessary inference, it's not something that's just been creatively suggested or that it's Church of Christ doctrine. If you have someone that comes to you and says that CENI is, which is kind of this nice little acronym, is just Church of Christ jargon, question where they're coming from. Love them, but question where they're coming from. And so this is not an exhaustive study of authority. More on that again in 2024 as we approach the end of 2023. But let me just share with you three little things, especially for those who say, I have no idea what you're talking about. Are you talking a foreign language here? And that's okay as well, because we have newer Christians who are here or who are listening this morning. For example, not forsaking the assembling as outlined in Hebrews chapter 10 is a command that we must observe. I understand I'm probably speaking to a group of people who probably already appreciate that, but it's an illustration of the fact that God said, do this, don't do that, and so we, we do it or we don't do that. He commanded it. And when God commands something, we say, yes, sir, I'll do it, whatever you ask me to do. Even if it doesn't always make sense to me, I'll still do it. And there may be things, spiritually speaking, religiously speaking, that don't initially make sense. Chances are, as you grow as a Christian and as you bear the spiritual fruit that Brother Bill talked about from Galatians chapter 5, it'll make more sense down the road. An example is to partake of the Lord's Supper weekly. 
You will not find a passage that says every Lord's Day come together and partake of the Lord's Supper. You won't find those words together, but you will find an example of brethren doing that 2,000 years ago early on in the church. You find a reference to it seemingly in Acts chapter 2 as well. And the necessary inference, sometimes people call it the idea of an inescapable conclusion. It's like common sense tells me that when Noah was instructed to build the ark all the way back early in the book of Genesis, God did not say, uh, here are the tools that you can use and the tools that you cannot use. And so there are various elements or instruments that he would have likely used. I don't think that he did karate chopping of boards to make those boards come to place on, of gopher wood, but rather he used tools to do that. And that's just a simple way of just kind of thinking about biblical authority in a very three to four minute synopsis that I think is important to include in a study much like this. Which brings us then to the final concept, and that is back to feel-good religion. It seems to me that feel-good religion is clearly not a proper rationale for doing something which seems right. If it feels good, do it. That was one of the 90s slogans for those of you that are back in the 90s. If it seems right, it's got to be okay. If it makes you happy, we're good with it. That's what the world suggests or outright teaches. And when you throw any sort of uh, road signs and say, I don't think that's correct, you are the one who's being harsh, judgmental. You are the one that's being old-fashioned and lacking the progressiveness that the world talks about. Let me share with you just three other quick applications as we close out our study. A one pastor situation to oversee seems fine to me, someone might say. One elder, one bishop. And in most denominations, you have one person who oversees that entire church. And some would say, well, that makes sense. That way there's no disagreement. Hopefully. We have five. (laughs) They've got to come to some sort of consensus some sort of agreement on how they're going to do those things. And someone would say, well, if it was just one, let's pick the best of the five. I'm not picking the best of those. I like them all. And it violates exactly what is taught in every passage that talks about a plurality of elders. And the more you think about it, the more you say, it makes sense that you've got two or more making those decisions. You know what? We could really, I, 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 would, I, would, I would quibble with this. Instrumental music is going to make our singing better. I was thinking about that this morning. Our singing is, I'm a little biased, but it's pretty spectacular. And again, you don't know what you've got until you don't have it. If you've been to a church elsewhere in the country, and they may have as many people as we have, and you're like, why am I the only one singing out? <laughs> you look at your spouse and say, are we singing loud? Because <laughs> you're used to, speaking out and sharing those messages, but everyone's bashful and the old rugged cross. We sing it with emphasis and we sing it with meaning as we need to and never get to the place where you sing without the spirit and you sing without the understanding as outlined in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, 15. But someone would say it would really improve our song service and we probably would gain some more people 
if we were to say, let's, let's give that a big thumbs up, check mark. But we know what the scriptures teach. And we know that in the New Testament that we've got to do things by command, by example, and necessary inference. And you cannot find the New Testament church engaging in instrumental music in the book of Acts or in Paul's letters or any place. You don't find it. So we say we're going to stay away from that. What about using the church treasury to help non-saints? You know, when you give out of your own pocket, there's something, uh, when, when, you, when you give $20 to someone, whether it be someone who's homeless or maybe one of your brothers or sisters who needs some help, say, here's $20 to help you. Or you do it anonymously, here's, here's $40 to help you. It's all I can do right now, whatever the case may be. Invariably, you end up feeling good about that. And that's okay. You should feel good. I hope you don't feel bad about it. Otherwise, you probably got the wrong attitude, right? Did you know that Not too far from us is a very prosperous liberal group that last year and probably this year decided out of its church treasury to buy X amount of $100 gift cards. Let's say maybe they bought 100 of them. And they said, gave them to all the different members, said, we want you to find people in the community to bless them. Oh, it made us feel so good. When I gave that homeless person that $100 gift card, oh, he was so happy. And I felt so warm. See the danger of feel-good religion? It makes you feel good, but it's not right. And it's not that it's wrong to help someone, but... 1 Corinthians chapter 16 is very, very simple where it says, when concerning the collection, and then there's that little three-letter word, for the saints. Now, if you, and someone, someone would say, well, I, I can't do that on my own. I, I can't do $100,000 or $10,000, whatever figure you want to come up with on my own. Well, that, that may be. Most of us can't. <laughs> But you might be able to do a little bit on your own. And if everybody does a little bit on their own, then you can bless people however you want with your own private money. But when it comes to the church treasury, it is for the saints. Because disobeying the Lord should never feel good. And I understand that's going to seem harsh to a world. That, and they'll probably accuse you. And they'll probably accuse us. And they'll certainly accuse me of being cold-hearted and you're unwilling to help those who need it the most. When you go back to Acts chapter 2, you people just go back to the Bible all the time. Thank you for that compliment. (laughs) Go back to Acts chapter 2, the Christians helped each other. And that's our objective with the church treasury. When it comes to instrumental music, when it comes to one pastor, when it comes to the Lord's Supper elements, there are all kinds of different things that we could do to maybe, quote, improve in a visual sense the way that we worship or the church environment. I remember a number of years ago, uh, there was a, uh, someone came to a, a church building much like this uh, elsewhere in the country, and it was a visitor and said, you don't have any, you know, like religious relics. You don't have anything that, you know, no, no big crosses, no big statues. Nothing. <laughs> so the preacher just said, <laughs> he said, he had more guts than I had. He said, look in, look in the pew, you see one of these? There you go. There's your religious relic. That's what we've got. 
we're not here to offer a show, uh, some sort of uh, exhibition of our talents. We're here because we want to do what the Lord wants. And feel-good religion is a very dangerous and slippery slope that we've got to make sure that we guard ourselves against. As I began, so I end. If you do not feel good about where you stand in relationship to God, make a correction. I hope that if you are not living correctly, either as a Christian in error or as someone who's never been baptized, that you feel a sense of angst and concern and worry and that you make the necessary correction today to be baptized or to come back to the Lord as we pray with you. If we can help you in any way, let us know while together we stand and while we sing.